0: A seat. I'm going to grab your Bible turn to the Old Testament to the book of Micah to the Old Testament the prophetic book of Micah so it is officially Christmas, I know there are many among us and you are the Thanksgiving protectors, you know who I'm talking about, those people who anytime you start sneaking in the Christmas music pre-Thanksgiving, they're quick to point it out, they give uh, general kind of aggressive statements on Facebook and social media about how they hate that, right, well, if that's you, your day has come and it is gone, it's the Christmas people's time now, it is December 1st. I told somebody recently Thanksgiving is just lunch. It is lunch. It's a nice lunch. It's amazing lunch, but it's it's just lunch. Christmas. Now Christmas is something to celebrate. I, I love Christmas. We Put up Christmas lights at our house last night. I love doing that. I I, I do that every year. um, Annabeth helped me. That's our four-year-old yesterday. And help, I mean, in quotation marks, helped. And uh, mostly what she did was she actually, it was was pretty sweet. I was putting up the Christmas lights, and she was kind of walking around the houses kind of near us, singing, we wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. It was very sweet. It was kind of a father-daughter moment. Loved it. And and so finished that and just, just had to go stand in the street for like, you know, 20 minutes just looking and admiring my work. I love Christmas. Last year at a Christmas party, I made a sweater that had Christmas lights on it. I homemade it. I had to carry a battery around to power the, the lights. But I just I, I love Christmas and so excited about uh, this season for us, these four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Uh, we're going to uh, take kind of a different angle uh, this year um, towards Christmas. Um, yesterday, Jackson, my seven-year-old, and I went to a car show downtown. And so we were driving in, into town, and you know we were doing like you do on long drives. You know, we would talk for a while, and then we listen to the radio and we talk. And, and in kind of one of those silent moments when we're just kind of just being in the car, uh, he says, uh, "Daddy, I, I want to talk about the Texas Revolution." <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to talk about it or do you want me to talk about it? And he, and he said, I, I want you to talk about it. Which I felt a lot of pressure in the moment because I'm not a native-born Texan. How many native-born Texans in the room? Yeah, okay, congratulations. Uh, here, here's what you, you folk make uh, plainly obvious to all of us who didn't have the great privilege of being born. And this fine state that uh, there is one event uh, in the last 1500 years that supersedes all other events and it is the revolution and independence of Texas. You, you just get that impression when you come across the border like these people they love this place and so it's so great and so fantastic and you love the history of this place you give dedicate years of your life in school learning just texas history america forget that world history who even goes to that section in barnes and noble but texas history texas history so uh you know i didn't grow up here and so my son as a native-born texan he's asking to t- me to tell him about the Texas revolution and you know I know some things but I'm, I'm, I don't know know everything and I here's here's the problem because if I mess up his mother is going to know and she's, she was born here, and, and, and I'm going to hear about it for a long, 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 long time. And he's going to go to school one day, and uh, the teacher's going to start talking about Texas history, and he's going to raise his hand, and he's going to go, uh, my dad doesn't know anything about Texas history, and that's going to embarrass me. And so, so I've, I, got, I feel a lot of pressure to, to get it right. And so I'm trying to maybe fish a little bit for like, what specifically he is looking for, you know, and maybe I can kind of steer him towards some topics that I am familiar with. And so I say, uh, you know, well, what what do you want to know? And he said, facts. (laughs) Well, about 20 seconds later, he followed it up with, and stories. You know, so I was better on the stories than the facts. But that's what we're doing this Christmas season. We are going to learn the facts and the stories of Christmas. That's one of the most powerful things about this holiday season as the people of God, being in the house of God, is that we we tell the stories of Christmas. Because when we tell these stories, they're not just stories about what happened once a long time ago. They're our stories. They're the story of you and the story of, of, of me. And when we read these stories, when we see these stories, we're seeing ourselves in them. God has been gracious to us in that way that he doesn't just hand us history that once was. It's history that comes alive in our lives through the power of his word. And so we're going to dedicate ourselves to these um, stories. And the angle we're taking this year is uh, more towards the Old Testament. We've talked about some of the characters um, in the Christmas story, I think two years ago, last year, we, we came around the word joy for three or four weeks. But this time, we're going to be more anchored in the Old Testament. And what these people who were, who were alive when Jesus was born, what were they thinking? What were they looking for? Um, you know, I don't know if you've thought recently, but why is Christmas special? You know, if we went over to our kids' ministry over there to, as they worship. And we say, why is Christmas special? I mean, any kid who's been to church, you know, four or five times would know Christmas is special because it's Jesus, uh, Jesus' birthday. And that's true. But Jesus was not the only baby that was born at that time. In fact, he was not the only baby born with his name. His name was Yeshua. Turn to your neighbor and say, Yeshua. It's a name that is translated in our language, Joshua. It's a very common name. A lot of people had this name. So Jesus was not the only baby born at that time. He was not the only baby born with that name at that time. So what makes his birth special? Because it was foretold. It was promised. And the people were looking forward to this birth. And that's what we're going to be looking at in these days. What promises are fulfilled in the Christmas story. And as one author puts it, because these promises were made and they were fulfilled, it means that we, as God's people, are people of promise. Now, you think about who makes promises. I mean, just think about the last person who made a promise to you or the last promise that you've made. You made a promise maybe to your mortgage company that you would make those monthly payments. And as proof that your promise was serious, you had to put a down payment, uh, you maybe make a promise to your credit card company that if they will pay for this purchase, you will pay for it later. Please don't make too big of promises uh, to your credit card company. That can get you into trouble. Right? Teenagers make promises. Uh, they're walking through the, uh, the mall and with their mom and dad or someplace, and they see something that they want, and they can't wait until Christmas, uh, but they don't have any money on them. What do they say? I, I promise I'll pay you back. I still owe my parents money from, I promise I will pay you back. The People who make promises in our culture uh, usually are people who cannot deliver at the moment. Um, I promise you, you got to trust me. I know I messed up, and I can't fix it in this moment, but I promise I will never do it again. I can't pay for this right now, but I promise you that over time, I will be able to pay for it. People in our culture make promises when they have to, when they're forced to because they can't deliver in the moment. But think about God. He can always deliver in the moment. God doesn't ever, ever need to borrow anything. In fact, the scripture says in Romans chapter 12 who has ever given to God that God should repay him, that God should be in that person's debt? No one. God can always deliver, He can always come through, and yet He's the one making us promises. We should be the ones saying to God all the time, I promise I'll never do that again. I promise I, 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 I'll change. I promise that I, I will come, I'll come to church. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. We should be the ones. But what do we find in the scripture? It's God who willingly obligates himself to us, offenders and sinners. He makes promises to us. And he made promises to the people of God in the Old Testament that were fulfilled By Jesus. Now, we're going to look at four of them today. Usually, we're just one point people, and uh, because I can only remember one thing, but we're going to do four today. We're going to see four things today, and I know you won't be able to remember them all, so I'm not even asking you to do it. So, I'm giving you permission to to forget uh, 75% of what I'm talking about today. Uh, So, but what we're going to do is we're going to ask God to speak at least one of these things to us. That one of these things that we're going to look at from the Old Testament will resonate with where you are in this moment. Mine body, and spirit. So Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, towards the end of the Old Testament, Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is said to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old From ancient days. Now, the prophet Micah, he was a prophet around 750 BC. The people of God at this moment are internally sick. They are wicked, they are broken on the inside, they're internally sick. And Micah was a prophet by God who was acting as their conscience. He was saying to them the things that they should have already known. He was speaking to them the things that they should have been speaking to themselves. But because they were internally sick, he had to do it. And so that's what most of his book is, uh, these prophecies are. It's it's he he is being the conscience of Israel. And as he's being the conscience, he is prophesying about the future Messiah. And it says, uh, but you, O Bethlehem, and look how it describes Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clan's of Judah. Now that's where we get that song, "O Little Town of Bethlehem." Right? This is a sweet song. When I when I hear that song, I, I think of those little um, little miniature uh, scenes. You know what I'm talking about? That people have in their house, little Christmas scenes, a little house here, a little skating rink here, a little train running through it with the felt snow. You know what I'm talking about? Go with me here, right? Uh, and, and when I that's what I think of when I hear the song, "O Little Town of Bethlehem." Right? But I mean, what town wants to be called little? Especially as you compare it to what Micah is mostly prophesying to, which is Jerusalem. You're comparing Jerusalem, which is the, the center of everything. It's the center of politics. It's the center of religion. It's the center of life. It's the center of the economy. And then you have, a little town of Bethlehem. Who lived in Jerusalem? Well, a lot of people. Tremendous amount of diversity. There was poor. But that's where the elite lived. That's where the powerful lived. That's where the Sanhedrin was. The rulers of Israel. Who lived in Bethlehem? Probably people who couldn't afford to live in Jerusalem. It was six miles outside of of Jerusalem. So you could walk there in a couple of hours. Just this little tiny village. And look how it describes it. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Um, Even among the people of God. They didn't think much of Bethlehem. So Christmas... This is not anything new to you. Christmas is the season for comparing. Just like we've been comparing Jerusalem and Bethlehem, just as the scripture does, Christmas is the season for comparing. What kind of gifts are you going to buy your family? What, how, how many gifts are you going to, to buy your family? Are you going to buy your kids the bicycle? Or are you going to buy them the, no, not the bicycle. Uh, I'm buying my kids the electric scooter. I, I'm taking it one up, you know, from you. I'm buying the electric scooter. Motorcycle. What are you going to get your wife? I'm going to get my wife a, a tiny little pair of diamond earrings. What are you going to give? I'm going to get my wife a diamond ring. I'm going to build my wife a diamond house. You know what I mean, it's just a just a comparison, right? This comparison. I mean, that's what those Christmas letters are for. You get in the mail. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't know if very, very many people still do that, but a few years ago, that, that was the thing. You'd write a letter, kind of summary of your life. You know what that letter is? Here is our life. What's your life been like? And you read that letter, no matter what the intent of was the, from the author. I'm sure you wrote your letter out of genuine holiday spirit. But what happens when you read that letter is you immediately compare your family to their family. You immediately compare 2013 to them, 2013 to you. I love reading those letters. I get one from my mom. You know, my mom writes a letter, and I sound amazing in that letter, you know? (laughs) Curtis and Amanda are doing this and this and this and this, I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this and this and this and this, and my kids are brilliant in the letter, and they're brilliant in real life. You know, I mean, it's just amazing. That's what we do at Christmas. We compare. It's the perfect season for comparing. Why? Because we're all buying stuff. We're all getting stuff. We're all accumulating stuff. But you have to come to these moments as followers of Jesus, well, you have to decide. Do you want to be Jerusalem? Or do you want to be Bethlehem? Because Jerusalem looks a lot better on a resume. Jerusalem is a better story in the circle of friends. Jerusalem is a lot better Christmas letter. Bethlehem was the one that was used by God. Bethlehem was what, the one where Jesus was born. Not Jerusalem. Bethlehem. And this Christmas season... God made this future prediction, this prophecy that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. It reminds you and I what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God uses the foolish things to shame the wise, and he uses the weak to shame the strong. So it's okay if you don't compare. It's okay if you don't measure up with the other people in your office. It's okay if you don't measure up even maybe inside your own family because it was Bethlehem that was chosen, not Jerusalem. Now I want you to turn a few pages to the left to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet and God asked him to do some pretty outrageous things to illustrate the impending doom that was awaiting Israel if they did not change. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now Rachel is the wife of Jacob, the patriarch. And so she is one of the mothers of Israel. And Jeremiah is using her as a metaphor. He's using her as an illustration because what has happened is Israel has been so wicked, God is going to ha- have them um, exiled out of Israel. Punishment is coming to them. And so Rachel, their mother, who's, who's been, uh, who has passed on for generations, uh, she's metaphorically looking at her children and she's weeping because they are being removed from their ho- homeland. And it says that that weeping can be heard in Ramah, which was a city. And during the Babylonian exile, meaning when the Babylonians came and conquered, Israel and they were carting off uh, Israel's people. Uh, the deportation happened in Ramah. So that was where the weeping was. That was where w- the deportation was happening. So Rachel is sad about it. And the reason that there's sadness, uh, both from her metaphorically and among the people of God during Jeremiah's prophecies here, is because the future of Israel was in jeopardy. Now we look back and we know that they still exist. But they were being swallowed up by another nation, and not just another nation, but a powerful nation, the Babylonians, and later the Assyrians. And so there was a real question, would Israel exist, or would it just get swallowed up in history and never remembered? Or if it was remembered, this would be the end. And so there's weeping. Now you fast forward to the New Testament, the gospel writers, they reach back to this story, reach back to this prophecy here in Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And they say, this is fulfilled. Because what happened, remember the wise men, the magi, they came to worship this newborn king of Israel, this savior who had been born. They're following the star. But as I mentioned, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only six miles apart. So if you're following a star and you see some cities out in front of you and a future king is being born, where are you going to go? You're going to go to some random village that's not even significant in its own country? No, you're going to go to the capital. And so... The wise men, the magi, they go to Jerusalem, they find the king, maybe thinking that it's his son that has been born and King Herod, he knows nothing about this. Now King Herod is a wicked man. He's literally insane. The older he got, the more insane he got. It's a crazy man. And so he sends the wise men on to Bethlehem where they go and worship Jesus, but he starts beginning to have a plan because he's the king. And any future kings that are being born are a threat to his power. He killed his own sons, Because he felt threatened by them. Um, And so what happens is the wise men, they visit Jesus, they worship, they receive a dream, they leave. Herod sends his troops to come and to murder little boys who were born in Bethlehem around the same time as Jesus. It sounds so, it's awful when you start thinking about like what kind of person could do that? What kind of person could be like Herod and do that? Same thing is happening in Syria right now. A power struggle and people will do whatever it takes to survive a power struggle. I find it amazing that that God took this terrible event and he placed it right inside our Christmas story. Because there's really not any room for, for it in our Christmas imaginations, is it? Christmas is... Filled with joy and peace and lights and celebration and trees and decorations and gifts. There's no room in that narrative for a story like this, for pain like this. But in the very first Christmas story, there was room for pain. And there may be room in your Christmas story for pain this year. Christmas is hard. Christmas stirs up a lot of of, uh, struggle, pain stirs up for many of us as many tears as it does laughs, as many wounds as it does presents. Why? Because holidays are markers for us. And you may not be able to remember a tremendous amount about your childhood today, but I bet you can recount most of your Christmases because we just remember them. For some of, for some of us, you know, this Christmas is different. It's different than last Christmas. 2013 has not been kind to you. There's maybe somebody who was at last Christmas that is not at this Christmas. Maybe some things that you had last Christmas that you don't have this Christmas. And in your Christmas story this year, there is room for pain. There's room for loss. And that's okay because in the very first Christmas story, it was there. But I want you to see what Jeremiah prophesies after the weeping. Verse 16 Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall shall come back to their own country. There is a reward for you if this holiday season is one of pain. And there is a future for you. If you're dreading this next 25 days... Take to heart, verse 17, there is hope for your future. And this season that you're in will pass away, and a new season will eventually come. Only God knows how long this season will last. But there will be a new season. There is hope for your future. Now I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 11. Prophet Hosea few books to the right. Extra credit to anybody who can actually find Hosea in the amount of time that I give you. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Hosea uh, was a prophet sent to confront Israel's idolatry. And God used him as a visible illustration. Hosea was commanded to marry a woman named Gomer who was a prostitute. And, and he married her not only knowing that she had been a prostitute, but then she left him to continue on in her prostitution. And he actually remained faithful to her and went and got her even after uh, she uh, cheated on him in that way as a picture of God's unceasing faithfulness to Israel. Even though Israel would be unfaithful to him... God would not be unfaithful to them and he would receive them back no matter what. So it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son, which is a reference here in Hosea to uh, the Exodus story in Exodus chapter three. But uh, Matthew, in Matthew chapter two, he reaches back to this uh, scripture in the Old Testament, this prophecy, and he claims that it is fulfilled uh, in Jesus's story because what happens is Herod is sending the troops. God comes to Joseph Jesus' earthly father in a dream and says, you need to flee, you need to go down to Egypt. And so Joseph does, he takes Jesus and Mary and, and uh, they go down to Egypt and they live there as long as King Herod is still alive. And after King Herod dies, they go back to Israel. So check this out. The savior of Israel is born in Israel and then immediately goes to Egypt. That doesn't sound right, does it? The savior of Israel is born in Israel. Israel and immediately goes to Egypt. That seems like a very inefficient way to bring Jesus to the front and center, isn't it? But listen, what we need to know about God is God is inefficient, and he is inefficient on purpose. Any person who is used by God is used through detours and not straight lines. Any person that God uses significantly has to wait significantly. Uh, This summer, Jackson and I, we went on a road trip. I've mentioned it to you before, but we started in Springfield, Missouri. We drove uh, I-40 slash Route 66 all the way to Los Angeles, California. It's a long ways in case any of you are uh, thinking about making that drive a long ways. I'd always wanted to do that Route 66 because I'm kind of weird, but thankfully there's a big freeway that runs right through the middle of it makes things go a little bit faster, but we'd stop at all these different places. And uh, We got to the border of California and old Route 66 goes one way in one direction and the freeway, the interstate goes in another direction both kind of end up in Los Angeles but the old road you know it takes a long time to get there Uh, and so normally we would skip something like that but something that I really wanted to see was along that old desert dirt road it was this town that was just abandoned almost overnight just a little town gas station shop hotel a few houses and it was like overnight it was just abandoned and then somebody preserved it so out in the middle of the California desert, there's just this pristine town that no one lives in, no one visits. It's just this ghost town, really, abandoned town, and I'm kind of weird and creepy, and I wanted to go and see that uh, because I thought, well, how many times in a lifetime do you get to see something like that? And so we got to that moment on the interstate where it was kind of like the day's been really long. We started somewhere in Arizona, and we saw the Grand Canyon, and, and uh, that night was going to be the first night that I spent in a real hotel, right, because we had been doing Route 66 seven-year-old style, so we stayed in this like super old motel, motor inn, uh, you know, the first night in Tucumcari, uh, New Mexico, and it, the, the room was about as big as this, you know, pulpit right here. The second night was cool. We stayed in a, a wigwam, like a real wigwam, and it had a bed in it and stuff, but not super comfortable, uh, but in Los Angeles, I man, L.A. We were going to stay in a hotel, and I was real excited about it, and so there's a part of me when we got to that divide, I'm like, you know, it's like five hours from here. This way, it would be like six and a half hours if we go the scenic route and, you know, what should we do? But we went the, we went the scenic route. We went on the detour and saw this abandoned town. It was so hot, by the way, that Jackson refused to get out of the car. Um, so I enjoyed this abandoned town. But that's why we took the trip in the first place is to experience things like that any detour that God takes you on, any long way around that he takes you on, it's because he has experiences for you on that detour. That's why sometimes you pray and your prayers don't immediately get answered. It's because he has an experience for you on that detour. That's why you want things and you dream of things and you beg God for things and you wait and you wait and you wait and you take the long way around because he has something for you. Because only on the detour can you learn humility. Only on the detour can you learn wisdom. Only on the detour can you get the experience that you will need to be used by God in the way that he wants to use you. I mean, we all know people. We all know children who ask for something and immediately get it. Any of you like those children? No. Because it's on the detour. It's on the waiting That God forms us and fashions us into who he wants us to be. I mean, think about how God led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They, They had been slaves in Exodus. They had been slaves for 400 years. There were generations and generations of Israelites, the people of God, who never knew freedom. God finally, he finally comes to them through Moses and rescues them with with signs and wonders. And they parade out of Egypt. And where do they go? They go to the desert. And how does God send them? Does he say, I want you to just take the main road from Egypt to Canaan? There was a main road. They were not the first people to make that trip. No, he says, here's how this is gonna work. I'm gonna send my glory in a cloud. And when my glory stops, you stop. And when my glory picks up and starts to move, you move. And God led his people for generations like that. Inefficiently. But it's only in those inefficiencies, only in those detours do we become the people that God wants us to be. Trying try to fight that all the time as we lead this church. Because we got some brilliant people in here. There are spiritual outcomes that all of us would like to have and see in our own lives and the lives of other people. So what should we do? A lot of us would like to just engineer a machine to produce those spiritual outcomes. You come one time and then you go to this thing and then you go to that thing and then you do this and this and this and this and this and, this and boom, voila, you're a saint. Here's a long-term plan. Here's what we're gonna do. Here's, what, here's the seven-year deal. To, What do we see in the scripture? We see that God leads his people turn by turn, cloud by cloud, inefficiently, through detours and the long way around. But that's how we become the holy people of God. It didn't make sense for Israel's Messiah to be born in Israel and go to Egypt. But that was the way of God. And then the last thing I want you to see, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, a prophet given to Israel to confront them because the people of God's practices and the practices of the nations that surround them had been woven together where it was hard to distinguish who were the people of God. But Isaiah is a book filled with prophecy about destruction that's going to happen, but also a lot of hope about what will happen after that destruction This is part of that hope. This will be very familiar to you. Verse six, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Will do this. It talks about this future Messiah that we know as Jesus who is, is going to be sit and, and is enthroned on the throne of David. Now, King David in the Old Testament was given a promise by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his throne, David's throne, would be established forever and ever and ever. And it looked like that that was not the case. When the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, there was a question mark over it. When the Assyrians came, a question mark. When the Greeks came and ruled, a question mark. When the Romans came, a question mark. But then Jesus was born in the midst of the question marks. He um, is shown in the beginning of Matthew and Luke. They give genealogies to prove that Jesus was born in the lineage of David. Jesus is a king in the line of David. He lived, he died, he was resurrected, and he ascended, where he sits on that throne even now, forever and ever and ever. This prophecy has been fulfilled. But look what it talks about, look what it says about Jesus' reign. Verse seven, of the increase, everybody say increase. Of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So Jesus is king in the line of David forever and ever and ever. And his rule and his reign is on the increase. It's advancing, it's moving forward, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I know it doesn't always seem like that. It seems like sometimes in our culture that Jesus' influence is getting less and less and less. But under the surface in unseen places all around the world, the kingdom of God is increasing. Which is what makes it such an exciting time to be Bayou City Fellowship. Because I'm not good at math, but good math seems to me if the kingdom of jesus is increasing then the church of jesus should be increasing that if the the rule of jesus is increasing then the people of jesus should be increasing which is why this sunday and next sunday are some of our most monumental sundays Uh, because this is the last time that bayou city fellowship will be one bayou city fellowship next week we give birth to a second bayou city fellowship if this is your first time here, uh, we're pregnant. Uh, and the baby is being induced next Sunday in Cypress, Texas. So we'll be here. So if you live close to here, then this, we'll be here rocking it at 9.15 and 11 o'clock. It will be the same Bayou City Fellowship that you've come to know and hopefully love. And at the same time in Northwest Houston, Bayou City Fellowship will exist out there. Why? Because the kingdom of God, the government of God is increasing. And the church should not be shrinking. That's bad math. So this week, we're asking you to increase with us. This week, we're asking you to increase your prayer. We've dedicated this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, to spend those lunches fasting and praying. So instead of eating lunch, you just skip lunch. You wave to your coworkers and say, I'll catch you next week. You eat a good breakfast. Then instead of going to lunch, you just slip away, maybe in your office, maybe in your car, maybe in a park, wherever you can find your space. And instead of eating, you pray. We're gonna give you an online guide, cityfellowship.com on the blog just some, to center your thoughts. You spend that time reading the scripture, praying, praying for our city, praying for our church, praying for you, praying for your family, praying for people that you care about, praying for the issues that are surrounding us in our culture and around the world. Listen, some of you may be like, well, I don't, I've never done that before. I don't know that I can do that. Just try. And if you can only get five minutes worth tomorrow, five minutes is better than zero minutes. And what I promise you is that Friday will be easier than Monday. In fact, I, I would guess that if you give yourself to it, by the time Friday comes around, you'll wish for more time. Where tomorrow maybe you kind of be like, this is hurry up, like how long do I have to be here in this prayer mode? Friday, you'll fill up the time. Because God has promised to meet us when we pray and fast. He's promised us extra power in Jesus' name when we pray and fast. And listen, if we're building a church but we're not building it in Jesus' name, filled with the power of Jesus, then what are we doing? Just engineering machine. And that's not the way God leads his people. So I'm asking you, and if I can tell you with any kind of authority as a pastor, please, please, please join us. If you don't listen to me ever again, please listen to me today. Fast and pray with us this week. And then the second thing we we'll ask you to increase is to increase your invitations. Is out there, if you're going to Cyprus with us, um, Big room, small team. Uh, Awkward to worship in a big room with a small team. So you need to be inviting everyone you know. And here we're sending out about 120 adults. It means there'll be 120 extra seats here, maybe a few more. That will be empty because we have sent those folks out there, which means they need to be filled up with, with somebody that you know and you love and you care about. Somebody you've been praying for. And God will be faithful to provide those people to you. This week, uh, somebody was making a delivery at our house, and I was helping the guy unload the, the truck, and we start talking, and he goes, so what do you do? I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm a pastor. You know, I'm sorry. Like, and, you know, he's like, I got to deal with all the baggage in his life, you know, about being about pastors and how we ruin everything. And I'm like, I'm a cool pastor, not one of those that you're thinking about. And so we were talking about church, and, and uh, you know, he loved to talk about things. He had a lot of opinion, really sweet guy. really, really loved him. And, uh, but it was one of those conversations where it was kind of like, I would say something and he would, he would just kind of say the same thing that he had always said. You know what I mean? Like we weren't getting anywhere. It's like a conversational treadmill. You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, to somebody like that, you may have people like that. And, and my simple invitation to them is just, just come and see, just come and check it out. You don't have to like it. I give you permission to hate it. Just come and see, come and see the house of God filled with the people. And make that your invitation this week to your friends, to your family, people on your street. Drive up and down your street as you fast and pray this week, praying for the people of your street that they will join you at your church, or they will go back to whatever church it is that they have a connection to. And invite. And invite and invite and invite. Why? Because one of the disciples he says to his brother, after he had seen Jesus, come and see. He doesn't give a big, long speech about why Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is worth following. He doesn't defend Jesus' Messiahship. He just says to him, come and see. And that's our invitation this week. Come and see. You know this is important to me. I do it every week. Just come and see. Please, this week, come and see. Come and see the house of God filled with the people of God. Because the rule of God, the rule of Jesus is on the increase and the church should be too. These are the promises that God fulfilled at Christmas. We're going to look at a few more in the next few weeks. The promise of hope, the promise of light, and the promise of faithfulness. Why don't you stand to your feet with me? We'll pray together. as we do, why don't you take just a second which one of those resonated with you today? That um, it's okay to be Bethlehem and not Jerusalem? That God uses the overlooked, the insignificant? Or maybe you're, God is speaking to you about the pain that you're carrying into this Christmas season. Is, uh, Is God Speaking to you and leading you on a detour in your life right now? Is he wanting to increase his rule, his authority in your life? What's he speaking to you? Just take a second and ask. speak to us. Your servants are listening. Make us doers of your word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen.